Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And thanks for the guys who showed up for Guide Talk. Awfully nice to have them uh, on the panel every week so faithfully. I appreciate them very much. My guest today uh, now is uh, Dr. Chris Bruno. He has written about five books, and he's uh, a really smart guy because not only does he write books, but he once pastored in Hawaii. So if you ever, you know, Spend any time in Minnesota, you know, if you can get a job in Hawaii, you're a very smart person. But uh, the book that we're going to talk about today is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. And this is going to be a fascinating discussion because I sometimes wonder how the earliest Christians and their practice of biblical theology, how they understood it and how they communicated it. So, Chris, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much. Uh, It's great to be back with you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this, because how did the apostles uh, understand the Old Testament? Yeah. You know, before we even talk about the question, I think it's an important question to ask that we don't always tend to think about. How did the New Testament writers read their Old Testaments? Because a lot of Christians have trouble with the Old Testament. Uh, they, they're they not quite sure what to do with different parts of the Old Testament, or, or they're not quite sure how to put the whole thing together. And I think a, a good on-ramp toward that is asking the question, how did the New Testament writers read the Old Testament? And then specifically, how did they tell the, the story of Israel? Because there are a few key places in the New Testament where we can kind of see them retell the whole story. And I think those can be pretty instructive for us. Yeah, see, Chris, if I was a really good radio host, I would have asked you those questions. But you asked them for me, so thank you for doing my job. Now oh, yeah. answer them. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if you had them queued up and ready to go, I don't want to steal your thunder. But um I would love to to just jump into the New Testament and, and maybe look at one or two examples, and then that can get us uh, get us going toward uh, toward answering some of these questions. Yeah, I love that. And actually, actually, we we could start at the very beginning of the New Testament, in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Now, if people are getting into their yearly Bible reading plan and maybe they're reading a chapter in Genesis and a chapter in Matthew on January 1st or whatever it is, there's going to be a tendency when they get to Matthew to skip about the first 17 or 18 verses. Okay. Why is that? This is is a genealogy. Okay. It's just just Jesus' family tree. But I think if, if people are paying close attention and reading it carefully, what what they'll see is it's not just a genealogy, but it's also giving us a little insight into the story of Israel. Matthew's adding a few details along the way that help us to see 
how he is understanding the story of the Old Testament. So, so Matthew 1, 1 begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So even there, he's pointing us back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament has all these genealogies. I think Genesis 10 or so is the first one where it talks about you know, the, the genealogy of Noah. So important figures in the Old Testament get these genealogies. We see them um, throughout First and Second Chronicles. You see it at the end of Ruth for King David. You see it several different places. And he highlights three key figures here, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, we can see a lot. We can see Matthew wants us to understand the story of Jesus that he's about to tell us. as not a disconnected story uh, from the rest of the Bible. as not something that doesn't have... Uh, a, a clear connection to the Old Testament, but instead it's directly linked to David, King David, and Abraham, the patriarch, uh, who we might call the, the father of Israel. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he wants us to understand how Jesus fits into this family line, and he begins to to tell the story, starting with Abraham, and, and highlighting the, these generations along the way. And one important clue or one important practice that we should uh, pick up on when we're reading these genealogies is to notice where he adds extra detail. So our tendency might be to just kind of glaze over, just say so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, on and on we go. But at a few key points, Matthew adds these little details that help us see the big picture. And along the way, he adds a few other details that help us see that, uh, that there's an important step in Israel's history that Jesus has come to address. You see, he, talk, he, he talks about Jesus, David, Abraham, and then he goes to Abraham, David, and then instead of going to Jesus, he brings up the exile. And so when he brings up the exile, that raises a lot of questions for the first century readers, and it also should maybe raise some questions for us as 21st century readers. All right. Sorry, so, I thought you were about to jump in there. Well, I was going to jump in. I was wondering uh, when you talked about some uh, details that Matthew puts in, wh- what are some of those details, or did you just share them? Yeah. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, we haven't. L- let me go to some of those. So okay, as you're reading through, you have so and so so-and-so, 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 Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah. And then then he adds this little tidbit, uh, Judah and his brothers. Mm. Okay, so, so that should flag something for us. Um, and it, it should cause us, really what should, this should cause us to do is go back to the Old Testament, if we're not familiar with it, or at least re- reconsider it if we know these stories. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the brother of Joseph, so there's something that Matthew wants to highlight there for us, to remind us that Jesus was the son, the great-great-great-great-grandson of Judah. Of all of the 12 patriarchs, Judah maybe isn't the one you'd expect. And then as we go on reading, we see another detail that Matthew throws in there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. So Tamar um, was Judah's... Well, Judah's daughter-in-law, and in Genesis uh, 37, 
we have this story that Matthew is highlighting for us, a story that uh, probably we're not too excited to teach in Sunday school right. of uh, Tamar. Uh, uh, well, I'll put it this way. Judah, uh, in Genesis 38, uh, Judah became the father to his own grandson. Right. Um, and uh, and Tamar, but Tamar, at the end of the chapter, uh, Judah says Tamar is more righteous than him. Mm-hmm. Without, without going into all the details of the story, uh, essentially Tamar intercedes to save the line of promise. And so if it, because Judah's two older sons had died without children, and he wasn't about to let his younger son marry Tamar because he thought he would die too. So there, there was the risk of the, the line of Judah dying out in which we discover in Matthew is the line of promise. So we find that the, this Gentile woman named Tamar in G- Genesis 38 was able to, to intercede into the line of promise. And so God used her to preserve the line, to preserve the line of Jesus, the line of the Messiah. And we actually see something similar a couple of more times in Matthew's genealogy. In, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 5, you're down a few generations. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And uh, So we have two other uh, women introduced into the line, Rahab and Ruth. Now, Rahab is, uh, if you remember, she's in Joshua 2, when Joshua and Caleb were in the land and excuse me, the spies were coming in the land, and she hid them from um, from those who were searching them out, trying mm-hmm. to kill them. So again, we have a Gentile woman interceding to preserve God's people in the line of promise, so that through her, the the family tree of the Messiah continues. You see the same thing with Ruth. Ruth and the story of Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament uh, intercedes, and she ends up marrying Boaz. She steps out in faith, um, and the line of promise continues through her. So Matthew's flagging for us, as he tells this story, three different women who acted in faith to preserve uh, the line of the Messiah, to save God's people, essentially— and, and through them, God continued his saving plan. So while he's telling us this story, he's bringing in these extra details that we should be familiar with or go back and re-familiarize ourselves with. You know, Chris, uh, in a patriarchal society, it seems amazing, but not because it's God, that he would allow four women to be in his genealogy. Because in the patriarchal society, you probably would leave women out, wouldn't you? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. That's another point. Uh, thank you for raising that, that in a, a patriarchal society like that, whenever a woman is named in the, in the genealogy, not, not just incidental details, but also whenever a woman is named in the genealogy, there's something, something going on there, mm-hmm. something that the author is wanting to point out for us. So at the very beginning of the gospel, it's reminding us that God uh, uses men and, and women to accomplish his purposes. Yes, and their distinct roles and, and all, all that sort of thing. But 
God uh, uses men and women to accomplish his purposes, his saving purposes, to advance his kingdom, and even in, in, these, uh, in these cases, to preserve the line that Jesus the Messiah would be born from. So as we read the Old Testament, we should pick up on these clues that, that Matthew uh, is showing us in his genealogy. Then we, we look at those women. We've got uh, an incest victim. We have a prostitute. We have an, uh, an unwed mother. I mean, these are, it's just amazing that this is in the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, these are women who who were not just women who in, in that day and age were kind of second-class citizens to begin with. Right. But, but we have women who were, you know, in particularly difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Women who were destitute and, and really desperate for the Lord to act on their behalf. So they stepped out in faith. All, all of these women stepped out in faith, and God not only used it in their generation, but he used it as part of this overall plan to uh, create a family tree from which Jesus the Messiah would come. Mm-hmm. So so Matthew's telling us this story along the way, giving us, you know, this kind of boring genealogy from our perspective. He's, he's flagging these things for us that we should pick up on then as we read the Old Testament ourselves, begin to put some of the pieces together. I like, yeah. Dr. Chris Bruno is my guest. He's the Associate Academic Dean and Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem Seminary. He's also written five books. The one we're chatting about today is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. We'll take a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Dr. Chris Bruno. He's written a number of books, five altogether, I think. Is it five or more than five, Chris? You ambitious um, person, you. I, yeah, either five or six. I don't, yeah. I think if you, if you count my, uh, some of my academic stuff, it might be six, but I have to go back and double check. Yeah, I love it. So we're we're learning today um, about the way the um, the apostles would be looking and viewing the the Old Testament, which is fascinating. And I love the genealogy. Uh, I, I love you taking us through this. Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, maybe we can jump to uh, Acts and uh, spend a little time in, in Acts seven, Stephen's speech, and maybe make a a few different observations. Uh, from a place where the the earliest Christians, now Stephen's not an apostle, but he's part of inspired scripture. Uh, so we can look at a place where the New Testament tells the story of Israel. And Stephen tells it, uh, you know, it's a long chapter. So if we sat down and read it, it would take the rest of our time probably together, um, which might be valuable, but may, maybe I can make a few observations yeah, for us do. that might help, help us uh, become better readers of both the Old and New Testaments. Now, Stephen stands up, and if if we're not familiar with the context, Stephen is one of the early Christians, one of the first deacons appointed in Acts 6, and he stands up at, at the temple, and it's basically giving a defense of the gospel. Um, and to do it, he walks through the history of Israel. He begins with Abraham— when God called Abraham 
in verse 2. And then as he goes through and narrates the story of Israel, he focuses on a few key figures. Now, he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs. We mentioned that when we were in Matthew, Mm -hmm. that Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So Stephen, instead of picking up on Judah, highlights one of the other brothers, the, the, the one who's probably more familiar to many of us, Joseph. And he tells the story of Joseph, which probably many of, the, of your listeners know how uh, the, the patriarchs who were jealous of jo- Joseph sold him into slavery, and God used Joseph to, uh, to preserve not only the Egyptians, but also his family. So again, we, we just like we saw back in Matthew 1, we see God using uh, using one of his servants to preserve the line of promise. But what's unique about Joseph is that he was rejected by his brothers, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. So he was rejected by his brothers, cast off from them, but then he was later vindicated we might even say he was vindicated and exalted. I would say so, yes. So you see Joseph uh, setting a pattern that, that Stephen wants to trace throughout Israel's history. That is the, the rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord. Th- then he, he moves from the time of Joseph and the Abrahamic covenant to the next covenant, the next major covenant in the history of Israel, that is the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant, and he focuses on Moses. And again, he tells the story of Moses, goes into a lot of detail, um, almost as much detail as the Old Testament itself does in telling the story of how when, when Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's uh, house, when he was 40 years old, he saw some of his fellow Israelites being wronged, and he struck down the Egyptian. And the response of his fellow Israelites was to reject him. Now, uh, uh, when we read the Old Testament uh, and we see Moses strike down the Egyptians, it's, it's not clear whether that was right or wrong, whether it was good or bad. And I'm not even sure if Stephen's answering that question for us. Mm-hmm. But what he is, what he is answering is the question of, how is Moses like Joseph? Well, he was rejected by his brothers and then sent away. So verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. That is the burning bush. So again, we see the same pattern, right? Mm-hmm. We have the the servant of the Lord who was rejected by his brothers and later vindicated and given some a place of exaltation. Moses led the people out of the promised land, or excuse me, out of slavery into the promised land. And then Stephen continues on through the same, uh, telling the story of Israel, highlighting the prophets. So uh, saying that, not one particular prophet, but rather uh, this pattern holds true for all the prophets uh, as he comes to the conclusion in verse 51. 
uh, or excuse me, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So he's saying that there's this pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament. Now, now I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of details. There's a lot more we could say in the story, in which uh, we do say in the book. Uh, but I just want to highlight this pattern for us. We see throughout the Old Testament this pattern of the rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord, and it culminates with the Lord Jesus, right? You mm-hmm. see the same pattern on display. Jesus is rejected by his brothers. Uh, his, his, well, his, his actual brothers didn't believe in him during his life, and then his kinsmen, uh, the way John puts it, is he came into his own and his own did not receive him. He was re- rejected. And, and not simply cast off in prison or in exile like Moses, but he suffered the agony of the cross because he was rejected by his brothers. And, and, but in, just like Moses, just like Joseph, God used that rejection and through it saved his people in the greatest possible way. So Jesus is the ultimate rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord. So another thing that the the New Testament teaches us about reading the Old Testament is we should see these patterns of Jesus. Uh, these some, some people call them types of Jesus, where uh, the Old Testament figures are pointing us forward to Jesus, not just in kind of specific prophecies, which there are a lot of those, but also in kind of the shape of their lives. We we learn to to read in a way that teaches us to anticipate Jesus. So we have this pattern of the servant of God is rejected by his brothers. He, he suffers unrighteously, but God through that suffering saves his people and accomplishes his purposes. And, and the amazing thing about Stephen is that the, the pattern actually continues. It's not just Stephen, or excuse me, it's not just Jesus, but Stephen himself is a picture of this. Mm-hmm. He's rejected by his brothers, and he's vindicated by the Lord Jesus as he sees him at the right hand of the Father. So that, that teaches us how we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we're united to Jesus. And so we, we should not be surprised when the same kind of things happen to us as we are rejected by those around us. With the expectation that, like the Lord Jesus, we will one day be be vindicated. If Mm -hmm. we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So the servant is not greater than his master, and so we, we are a part of that pattern as well. That's a great reminder, Chris. So appreciate you coming on the program. This book is a, a wonderful a read for understanding Israel's Old Testament history as it's summarized uh, in the New Testament writers. Chris Bruno has been my guest, and the book, again, is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. Chris, thanks for doing the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Bill. It's always nice to hear your voice. Have a great rest of the day. You too. All right. Thank you. So we're going to take a little break. I'll be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Show with Bill Arno. 
Dr. Cal Bosner is founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And that is a network of over 60 complete brainiacs. I was not invited to be part of this team. Um, Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship economic economic development for the poor and the proclamation and defense of the good news of salvation by God's grace. I get a chance to talk to Cal often. It's been a while. Cal, nice to have you back on the show. It has, Bill. Thanks very much for having me back on. Yeah. How did you survive the COVID? I don't think we've spoken in six, eight months. Has it been that long, really? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Actually, my wife and I both got COVID back in March. And uh, we're much, much better. Uh, We've largely lost our sense of smell. But aside from that, I think we're doing okay. Terrific. Well, I'm (laughs) glad. 99.95% of other people our age and up. (laughs) And and I won't say our ages, but I will say that that puts us in the... the, uh, Out out of the three basic age groups... uh, you know, birth to 50 and 50 to 65 and 65 and over, that puts us in the top one of those age groups <laughs> okay. with the worst chances of of death if you get sick. But nonetheless, we were, we were among the 99.5 out of every 100 who get COVID and survive it in that age group. Yeah, well, I appreciate um, you being back on the show, and I'm glad you're doing better, and you and your wife as well. I always love talking to you about what's going on in terms of the climate change news. And I think there was uh, recently uh, the president told the U.S. military service members in Europe that climate change was the greatest threat to America's national security and claimed that top military brass had been told that. Yeah, I mean, he's he's being very consistent about this. Back yes. in October of 2018, he told the whole world that climate change was America's biggest national security threat. Twelve two, or two years later, just 12 days before the 2020 presidential election, he called it the number one issue facing humanity. And back on January 27, he called it an existential threat and issued an executive order putting the climate crisis at the center of United States foreign policy and national security. And then yesterday, yeah, uh, he was in England and he was speaking to American forces there. And he said that that climate change was the greatest threat, quote and unquote, greatest threat to American national security. And as you mentioned, he said it was America's top military brass who had told him that. Well, <laughs> the next day, Army General Mark Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and uh, Chiefs of Staff, took his boss to school. <laughs> he corrected Biden. He said, and I'm quoting here, climate change does impact, but the president is looking at a much broader angle than I am. I'm looking at it from a strictly military standpoint. And from a strictly military standpoint, I'm putting China, Russia up there. <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, I I think the chairman is sane, even if the president isn't. But unfortunately, of course, the president is our military's commander-in-chief, and he can fire any general at any time he wants. Mm -hmm. So it was 
probably just a, a, a misspeak by President Biden. Uh, well, if he hadn't been so consistent on this message right. for several years, I might agree with that hypothesis. But, but no, he's he's been very consistent about this. And and you know, when you actually issue an executive order, I mean, it, it's hard to call that uh, a little misspeak. Um, no, the president is fully convinced of this, which tells me uh, that he is fully deceived about this. I mean, if he were to read the thousands of pages of scientific discussion in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, assessment reports on this that come out every five or six years or so, uh, if he were to actually read those thousands of paper pages, if, if he were capable of that, he would know that even that organization doesn't ever call climate change an existential threat. It doesn't ever elevate it to, you know, greatest national security risk for any country in the world, let alone the United States. And as a matter of fact, if you read those those reports with any care at all, you discover that climate change is a pretty small threat compared with all sorts of other problems that human beings face all the time. The IPCC actually says that that even if we did nothing to reduce climate change by the end of this century, uh, everybody in the world would be a whole lot better off than everybody in the world is today. Uh, that um, you know, people from the poorest countries today would have income similar to what the United States has today. Uh, I mean, that's that's amazing. Essentially, they just simply say that well. Climate change might might uh, take about three percent off of global, you know, gross world product in the year 2021 or in the year 2100. Well, that's compared with a gross world product that it projects is going to be many times bigger than what it is today. Mm-hmm. That's no big threat. Wow, Kel, is green energy clean energy? Uh, well, it depends on how how comprehensively you're looking at it. If you're just looking at uh, comparing the air around a wind turbine or a solar panel uh, with the air directly above a coal-fired or natural gas-fired or oil-fired uh, electric generating plant, well, yeah, we could say that the uh, the wind or the solar was cleaner than those are. But if you look at the whole, what we would call life cycle assessment of these things, it turns out that it's not that way at all. Um, And the reason for that is that you need vast amounts of of, uh, what are called rare earth metals and other uh, minerals uh, dug out of the earth to make wind turbines and solar panels and you have to move vast amounts of earth to do that. Turns out you have to do a whole lot more of that for those than you do for coal, oil, or natural gas. And you have to use fossil fuels to run the gigantic machines that do all that mining. And meanwhile, you've got all the runoff from the mining. You've got the runoff from the uh, 
from the uh, refining of those uh, those uh, minerals, and so it turned out to actually uh, cause more pollution in the long run, though of a different kind, uh, with wind and solar than you do with coal, oil, and natural gas generating electricity. Mm-hmm. Cal, I would imagine. Kind of a surprise. Yeah, I would imagine there are carbon monoxide monitoring stations throughout the United States that are giving us indicators of how much there is and is are those levels increasing dropping what's going on at those measuring stations well, car, uh, carbon monoxide yes. uh, which is a poisonous gas uh, uh, quite deadly uh, at even reasonably low concentration i mean that's that's what kills you if you uh, if you park your car in your garage, put down the garage door, turn it on, and, and uh, you know you're you're committing suicide, it's the uh, carbon monoxide that does that. Yeah, you know, there are carbon monoxide monitoring stations all over the United States, basically in in urban places, and nowhere in the United States is CO uh, out in in the open uh, concentrated enough to be a threat to anybody's health. Um, in fact, that and all other toxic gases, uh, toxic air pollutants, have been falling uh, drastically for actually the last uh, roughly 60 years in the United States. Uh, most of them are over 90% down from 60 years ago. And so our air is actually much, much cleaner all over America than it was then. Mm-hmm. Does the United States face any kind of national security risk of being dependent on China for um, all of the things that China manufactures oh, in terms of yeah. of clean energy or uh, or uh, green energy things? Absolutely, there are there are seventeen different minerals that are uh, that are absolutely essential to strategic security for the United States because of their role in the making of the various different components of our of our national defense system we are dependent for every one of those on imports from China uh, I mean that's that's just you know that's pretty absurd when China is probably America's most important national security threat. Mm-hmm. Certainly a bigger threat than climate change. Uh, but yeah, we, we face some real serious problems there, similar to the problems that we realized um, last year in the COVID crisis, uh, the COVID pandemic, where we are dependent on China for many, many, many of our, uh, our, our medical drugs that we use. Right. Uh, they come from there too. It's just not a good idea to be dependent on your probably biggest enemy for things that are essential to your life, to your national security, to your economy. And how serious does China take uh, climate change? Well, it's building coal-fired power plants, which are the biggest uh, source of carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, you know, per gigawatt of electricity generated. Uh, it's building those at an extremely rapid pace. Uh, essentially, 
if the United States were to wipe out all its CO2 emissions, the new new CO2 the, the new coal-fired power plants that China is building would replace all of those within a period of about a decade. Uh, so <laughs> China is clearly not taking climate change seriously, uh, but it's delighted that we are. Yeah. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest from the CornwallAlliance.org. You should always head over there to check it out. There's some brilliant things to read over there. He's always has always has an offer too of some kind. Cal, what's the the most recent offer you're suggesting for our yeah, listeners? We have a great uh, recently published book called "Climate Change: A Convenient Truth" by my friend Jim Hollingsworth. Uh, he's a you know multidisciplinary scientist. And what's really cool about this book is that its 48 chapters tend to run two or three pages apiece. And so you can learn quick things about all sorts of different topics in there. Uh, it's written uh, such that anybody with a 10th grade education can understand it quickly. All so right. what we do is, uh, as our way of saying thank you, when somebody donates any amount, doesn't matter how small, uh, and asks for it, we'll send them a copy of this. All they need to do to uh, to ask for a copy is to go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the Donate button, and as they fill out the donation form, when they come to the uh, the comments field, just put in promo code 21-06, 21-06, that's for June of 2021. Okay, awesome. Cal, we'll take a little break. When we come back, uh, lots more. Say, if you uh, are interested, we're also um, giving away a Tony Evans study Bible, uh, one a week throughout the whole month. So it's a beautiful Bible. I've got one sitting in the studio right here, and you're going to want to get in the drawing for that. And the way to do that is just to enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. Be back in a minute. talking to Dr. Cal Beisner, who is the founder of the Cornwall Alliance. You can go to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about Cal and his brilliant team of, of research, biblical scholars and scientists and economists. He's got it all over there. So during the break, Cal, I was thinking about what you said about who has this time to go read these thousands and thousands of pages on the evidence. And really, for, for, for most people, that's kind of an overwhelming daunting task. How do I even analyze this information? How do, how does it make sense to me? Um, so maybe there is a, uh, a perception, a popular perception of global warming that people just buy into because they're not truly examining the information themselves. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And, and uh, you know, our general public should not feel bad about themselves about this. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. All. Thanks Politics. for saying that. <laughs> Politicians do the same thing. Journalists do the same thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, it is a bit of a challenge. What I can say is 
there are some really good books, like the one that we mentioned just before the break, Jim Hollingsworth's book, Climate Change, A Convenient Truth, which we'll be glad to send uh, free as our thanks when people make a donation of any amount at Cornwall Alliance and just mention promo code, uh, pardon me, promo code 21-06. Uh, you know, that's one. We have quite a number of others also available through our online store at, at uh, cornwallalliance.org. And so what I would suggest is that uh, people need to you know, to read just a few things that go beyond uh, normal, say, uh, newspaper report or, or uh, uh, you know, TV report and, and get a grasp of what actual scientists are saying as opposed to what environmental activists yeah. are saying. Um, even the scientists with the UN Intergovernmental on Panel, uh, Panel on Climate Change are not saying alarming uh, things. You'll never find the terms existential threat or catastrophe or anything like that in their reports. Uh, where you'll find them is in what's called the summary for policymakers that comes out from the IPCC. But that's written basically by bureaucrats appointed by the various governments around the world uh, to, to further the policies of their elected leaders. In other words, the summaries for policymakers are political documents, not scientific. Mm -hmm. um, so I would recommend, especially as a, as a great introduction to this stuff for people, a book by my good friend, Dr. Roy Spencer, uh, he is a climatologist at the University of Alabama and a NASA award-winning scientist. Uh, wonderful book called Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People. Uh, that's available through our online store. Nice. And, uh, you know, what can help is just to, to make the distinction between claims of crisis and actual, you know, quantified... Uh, information about how carbon dioxide eff affects temperature. And that's what Roy does so well in this book. Cal, let me ask you this. We hear about the Green New Deal. If it got fully implemented, would it slow down climate change and would it reduce my cost of electricity? Uh, no and no. Um, <laughs> Seriously, because but, but, but it would cost us. Um, oh, if, if for full implementation of the Green New Deal, mm -hmm. uh, which which would not happen unless they made a bunch of coalition uh, relationships with other people with other uh, other policy goals in mind. You know, it's it's the vote trading that goes on in Congress. I'll vote for your bill if you vote for mine, right? Uh, that's that's the only way to get a bill like this through. And the American Enterprise Institute estimated a couple of years ago that it would cost roughly $9 trillion a year to implement the Green, the, uh, Green New Deal. And no, it would not have any significant impact on global average temperature throughout this century. By the end of the century, it would it would reduce global average temperature by less than 0 0.03 degrees Celsius, hmm. three uh, 
hundredths of a degree Celsius. You can't measure that. It has no impact on any, on any ecosystem or human well-being, but it would cost trillions and trillions of dollars to do it. And uh, it would greatly increase your energy costs because you would be forced to depend on wind and solar, which are uh, for the consumer, much more expensive than uh, energy from coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, hydro. Um, you know, that's that's the way it would go. By the way, um, <laughs> part of the aim of the Green New Deal is to get us to the point where we have no uh, internal combustion engine uh, vehicles on our roads anymore, and we have provided all of our electricity totally by wind and solar. Well, uh, <laughs> Harvard released a study last summer uh, showing that if we were to get all our electricity from wind, we'd have to cover all the land from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi within the United States with wind turbines. Uh, and if we were to <laughs> electrify all of our vehicles, that would require enough more electricity that we'd have to cover all the land from the Mississippi onto the Pacific. I'm uh, not sure that even even environmentalists want that. I mean, I, don't they like pretty, you know, aesthetically satisfying uh, views? Uh, I'm not sure that wind turbines from sea to shining sea quite meet that criterion. Yeah. How does th this... Green New Deal, all the trillions of dollars that would be uh, spent, how does that affect people like the poor and the elderly? Well, it's devastating for them. And it's not just the Green New Deal. It's the entire push to, uh, to force a rapid transition from, uh, from fossil fuels to wind and solar as our primary electricity sources uh, that, that hurt them. And here's how. Uh, it increases the cost of energy. Now, if you are wealthy, you might spend, say, oh, five, six, seven percent of your income, or maybe one or two percent of your income on energy. So if you double the price of energy, you can use the same amount of energy and only go from one or two percent to three or four, uh, you know, two or four percent, or from five percent to ten percent. But most poor people spend a much higher percentage of their incomes on energy than do wealthy people. Uh, in fact, uh, they average over 15%, and the poorest people in America tend to spend as much as 50% of their wow. income just on energy. You double the price of energy for them, you go from 15% to 30%. You go from 50% to, well, 100%. But of course, they can't do that. They have to have food, they have to have clothing, they have to have shelter, they have to have medical care and all of that nice stuff, right? Um, so what then happens is that they go without a lot of the energy that they need, and they're more susceptible to uh, damage, you know, to, to medical harm from heat waves or from cold snaps. Uh, Great Britain experienced this, more than doubled their uh, their average annual winter premature deaths from 2006, I think it was, to 2012 because of the increase in energy prices when they pushed hard to substitute uh, wind for 
uh, for coal and gas electric generation. Uh, that was tragic. It involved uh, 30,000 some extra premature winter deaths wow. every year. Wow, that's unbelievable. Cal, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon to be on the program. A lot of listeners have texted in saying, wow, this is fascinating. So thank you so much for your wisdom and insight. Well, Bill, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's thank you. do it again. Uh, we will indeed. Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. Go to the cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. That wraps up our show for the day. I want to thank all my guests for making it such a wonderful show. I'm looking forward to our time together tomorrow. I hope you have a wonderful night. And just remember God loves you, and he's got an amazing plan for your life. And cast all your cares and anxieties on him as you lay your head on the pillow. If you're listening to the podcast tonight, rest well. No, God's, God's in charge. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.